and welcome to episode 32 of the Paul Norton podcast. Now today's episode is I'm joined by an amazing guest and this episode is really interesting because we dived into everything to do with IBS, you know, emotional eating and everything just to do with our mindset around food and really really got into the depths of IBS and the causes and stress and trigger foods and all that kind of stuff. So this is going to be an extremely valuable podcast for anyone who wants to either improve their mindset with their food, relationship with their food, and also if you are struggling with IBS or even small signs of IBS, this is going to help you massively. I hope you enjoy this podcast and take care. So I guess, first of all, um, thanks for coming on. Like it's you know really good to have you on. So I suppose rather than me explain who you are, it'd be good to you explain who you are and what you do and stuff. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me, Paul. Um, so my name's Sarah. Um, I always say this part because you're kind of like, oh, what do I say about myself? <laughs> um, I am a nutritionist and yoga teacher, and I specialize in gut health, IBS, and improving our relationship with food. Um, so my kind of interest in gut health and IBS comes from my own experiences with having IBS and trying to navigate all of the confusing information online that's completely contradictory and telling you to cut out everything and anything and leaving you with very little foods left to eat. Um, and then I suppose that kind of experience, I suppose, affected my relationship with food a lot as well, because it was that fear of I eat this is it going to cause a flare-up is it going to cause me pain um and again that kind of short list of foods and fear and different things like that so through that experience um I obviously did a degree in nutrition for four years so I had that little bit of extra help that I could kind of have that ability to research properly and have the skills to do so and through that and my experience and trial and error of a lot of different things I kind of realized that management of gut health and IBS is so much more than just food it's a lot to do with um our exercise our stress levels um our sleep and particularly our relationship with food too um it's a lot less about eating less and less and less and taking things out a lot of it can be to do with adding lots of things in and getting enough food can really impact our digestion and our IBS symptoms and then work on that relationship with food and reducing that fear and that sort of stress of and panic and anxiety of foods um, can be really, really helpful too. So I also work with a lot of people with issues such as kind of emotional eating um, binge eating. Um, don't really like that term because not binge eating disorder, that's an eating disorder, but the sort of habits that some people may develop. Um, and as I've worked with both types of clients, I've seen a huge crossover between the two in the past year or so. Um, so through that experience and a little bit of research I've realized that the two kind of have to go hand in hand if you have a poor relationship with food that can impact your digestion and um, if you're particularly say if you're emotionally eating that can cause a lot of discomfort and um, bloating things like that due to kind of increased food intake and um, equally if you're scared of a lot of foods that can cause Im impact on your digestion by not enough food which doesn't really help your digestion um, and then a lot of them can cross over. Sometimes IBS can be really, really lonely and causing a lot of stress and anxiety, which can then lead to comfort from food and emotional eating um, and vice versa. So anyway, there's a lot of crossover in the past year. So for that reason, it's um, sort of, they go hand in hand and that's, a, they're kind of the two areas that I sort of focus on now with clients. So I guess what, like, what is IBS? Like, what is, what is IBS in from like yeah it's probably a really good place to start <laughs> um so ibs is short for irritable bowel syndrome um and i suppose because i'm so familiar with it i kind of forget that i should probably say the words instead of just the three letters um but it is a functional gut disorder which is more commonly described now as a disorder of the gut brain axis um so i'll go a little bit into the gut brain axis because i think it's a really important aspect of IBS that is definitely getting a lot more attention but up until maybe the last year or so was not really given a lot of limelight partly because of the lack of research I suppose as well but uh, the gut brain axis is basically 
I like to describe it like a telephone line between the brain and the gut. So if you can imagine you call up, okay, let's just say the brain will call up the gut to say, hi, just letting you know there's some food coming if you just before your meal. Let's get ready by producing some gastric juices, um, stomach acid, enzymes, different things like that to cope with the food that's coming in and digesting it. So the gut is like, thanks so much, brain. Cool. We'll get that sorted for you now. And then maybe 10 minutes after you finish your meal, gut picks up the phone and it says, hey, brain, just saying, you know, we're pretty full down here. Do you want to tell her to stop eating? And then the brain's like, cool, let's stop. And usually in a normal situation, you get that sensation of fullness. And unless you're an Irish person, you cannot leave anything on your plate. Um, and you stop eating. So that's just a very simple sort of um, way to describe that's very very simplified um, but another way to kind of imagine that is when you have say an exam or um, a presentation and you feel that sort of butterflies feeling in your stomach that's that sort of stress or worry kind of being translated down to the gut the brain is like hey we're doing something now and um, it's a little bit stressful a little bit worried but just letting you know you might need to open the bells to let go and make us lighter in case this stressful situation is a threat and we need to get away. So the gut is like, okay, cool. Um, let's bring it to the bathroom and then boom. Um, but this is caused by the, the blood. Basically the stress response is um, our sort of evolutionary response to a threat or a stressor. Um, so if we think about in caveman times when that was really, really useful, you might be walking along and you see a predator like a bear or a lion. And in that moment you need to say, right we need to get away from here or fight the bear and in that moment your brain responds really really quickly by releasing a load of hormones such as kind of cortisol adrenaline or adrenaline to help your body to get away from that bear and one of those one of the things it does there is it switches off your digestion and anything that's not useful or needed in that moment um, to save energy for the working muscles to either fight the stressor or to get away so when this happens, the blood is drawn away from the gut and towards the working muscles because those are that's the part of the body that needs that oxygenated blood and that energy. So that's where you feel that sensation of butterflies in the stomach or kind of somersaults. It's the blood moving away from from the muscles. So this is really useful when you're in a situation like that. That's really really stressful because you can get away pretty quick. Um, but these days. It's not so often that we're being chased by a predator. It can happen, but not really that often. But our stressors are so different. So you could have four different stressors coming at you all at once and your body still responds in that same way. So you might think about um, a stressful email, email from a colleague or a boss, a person who just makes you feel really uncomfortable or worried. So that could be like a family member or a bully or someone in the workplace. Um, your phone ringing, that's kind of like, whoa, something's happening yeah. social media can be with all the scrolling you know and reading and seeing different things and the comparison um so there's loads of different stresses that we can experience all at once now which can unfortunately leave us in this sort of stress response which is continual whereas in the caveman situation we get away from the stressor the rest and digest situation comes back in and all our the kind of stress hormones go down, we come back to a state of homeostasis, digestion comes back to normal, everything else comes back to normal, we're nice and calm and chill. It's a lot harder for us to do that in our modern world because of all this stimulation that we're getting, all the different things you have to juggle, like your kids, your, well, for some people, um, kids, family life, working, pandemic, um, all these different things coming at you. It can be really, really hard to get back to that rest and digest without some extra sort of focus and attention on that. So for this reason, that stress response can play a really big role in irritable bowel syndrome or any digestive issues. You don't have to have irritable bowel syndrome to experience this. It can be very common. So if you're caught in that stress response constantly, um, that's where people might notice more commonly getting more loose stools or getting more bloating or getting more constipation and different things because essentially that gut brain axis, your brain is saying to your gut on the phone, this is really, really stressful. I'm going to need you to hold off for a while while we sort this out. And he may never call back for a long time because it's not been sorted out sort of way, basically. So when you're, you're still eating, maybe, um, but it's not really 
the body's not fully able to process that food properly so you might find that bloating or the loose stools or different things like that so that's a very long-winded way to describe IBS um, but there's also lots of other factors too that we might go into later on but I just always need to bring the stress component in because it just plays such a strong role and um, we really need to focus on that because it really is driven by stress through that gut brain axis so without focusing on that stress um, it's really hard to address what's going on. That's such a good point because I've got sometimes IBS and you know, they've gone to the nutritionist, but they've never really talked about stress. They've always, the person they've gone to has always just tried to, you know, cut out the foods and cut out as much food as possible. So like, how, how do you get diagnosed with IBS? Like how, what's the process to like that? You, how do you know you have IBS? So you need to be diagnosed by your GP um, and self-diagnosis is really not a good idea. Just simply because some of the, um, symptoms such as that kind of diarrhea and um, bloating different things like that can cross over with some other illnesses that may be a little bit more serious and need a little bit more attention so things like celiac disease which if you have celiac disease you really need to be managing that because it damages your gut lining whereas it doesn't have that same sort of detriment I suppose um, not to downplay how bad IBS is because it can be really really tough but um, no pun intended um, basically it can also cross over with things like irritable bowel disease um, which is a autoimmune disease and also bowel cancers and different things like that so basically it's more of a sort of diagnosis of exclusion that your doctor will do there's a few blood tests that might be done but generally they kind of check everything's okay that you're not celiac you're not don't have um irritable bowel disease um, and once all these things have been crossed off you generally will get that okay you've probably got ibs here's a list of foods you should probably avoid and then send on your way. Just exercise, eat well, you'll be grand. Um, so generally how they do it is if you look back, I think it's six to 12 months of at least one, one abnormal bell movement per, or no, one, is it three abnormal bell movements per week? And that can include things like your loose stools, constipation, um or a combination of the two and with that information they can say yeah it's probably going to be IBS so yeah that's sort of the main thing is go to the GP get the test done and if you have everything else clear that's generally what you're going to get and um, sometimes now it might not be IBS it might be a, a lifestyle situation where you might be not sleeping very well um really really stressed um, not really eating enough or eating a little bit too much or different things like that. So it's unfortunate they don't go into a little bit more detail on that side of things because a lot of people might come to me and they've got a diagnosis of IBS and actually when you work on their lifestyle and things like that, it almost is like it disappears, if that makes sense. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of, it's very simple to diagnose with the GP, but again, it's the treatment of it is a little bit more complex that would probably be helpful with somebody else if that makes sense what would be i suppose if you had ibs then what would be the what would be the what are the kind of trigger foods is there trigger foods ibs or how does how do foods play a part in like ibs for go health so there are um a group of carbohydrates called they come under the umbrella term of fodmops and fodmop is an acronym for fermentable oligosaccharides monosaccharides hmm. I, could, I have to think of a favorite pod disaccharides monosaccharides um and polyols and these are all different types of carbohydrates which are more fermentable in the gut and for those with IBS they can either cause more fermentation which is where you get the bloating and for others it might cause a uh, water to be drawn into the gut which then causes more loose stools so the more water you have in the gut the more looser seals are going to be and the more kind of um it triggers a release of more water seals basically so these foods will vary completely for a lot of people and this is where it gets a little bit complicated because with the loaf with the low FOMAP diet which is often what a lot of people will get that sort of printout from the gp which is generally from a website which hasn't really been updated maybe like five or six years or something um, and they say go on off on your way and just cut out all these foods and you'll be grand 
the thing is with the low FODMAP diet, it is a very evidence-based, um, the kind of most evidence-based um, approach to IBS that we have, which is why it's most commonly prescribed or suggested, because it really is the only real evidence-based approach to supporting it um, that has been fully studied in the case of IBS, if that makes sense. So basically how it works is it's meant to be a three-part diet or a three-phase um, approach. So first you have the elimination phase, which would be no more than two to six weeks. If after two, if after the six week mark, you feel no improvement, then your symptoms are unlikely to be caused by food. And that's the point where you say, let's cut it. There's no point continuing. Second phase is going to be then the reintroduction phase. So this is where you get to trial the different foods. So usually it's done in kind of groupings of the different FODMAPs. So a certain amount of the food will be trialed and then maybe a little bit more of it and things like that to see how the gut reacts which is great. And then the third phase is the personalization phase. So every single person is going to be triggered by different foods and different amounts of those foods. So for example, if you take Joe X has an issue with, let's say onions, for example, where he can eat half an onion cooked, but he can't have a full onion cooked. Whereas Mary, let's say, can't have any onion at all. Whereas Joan might be able to have a quarter of an onion. So it's so individual and so different that it's really hard to, you know, you just given this, this piece of paper and told, go on your merry way. It makes it really difficult for the individual because one, they don't know that there is that three-part process. Two, majority of them get stuck in the elimination phase thinking that this is what they have to avoid for the rest of their lives, which can be quite isolating, really, really difficult to eat. And then you have the other issues of potentially leading to poor relationship with food, food fear, for your anxiety. And again, all those feelings are stressful, go brain axis, and you're in a mess on top of all the other stresses. So, so yeah, so that's your evidence-based approach diet-wise. Generally, we recommend this to be the last protocol because of the restrictive nature of the diet, which can add stress, which is always going to be annoying. Um, and before that, there's so many other first line approaches, second line approaches, and that should be the last, including your lifestyle, like looking at your sleep, looking at your stress, looking at your movement. Um, so generally it's looking at, from a kind of, I suppose my approach and a lot of other nutritionists approach would be looking at your stress, your sleep, your movement. If that's not working, okay, then we'll look at the first line approach, which might be reducing like spicy foods, reducing caffeine, um, increasing fiber. A lot of people get really scared about fiber because the FODMAP foods are types of fiber as well. Um, increasing your water and different things like that. Stop, if that's not working, then going a little bit maybe like a FODMAP light approach. And if that's not working, the full FODMAP diet. For this type of diet as well, it works or relieves IBS symptoms for about 70% of individuals, which is great. But then there's also that other 30% who are still struggling after it. For that reason, it's it's best to do it for the very last approach to reduce that stress again. And it's also really, really vital that it's done with the help of a trained FODMA nutritionist or dietitian, someone who's trained in it, because this research is constantly ongoing. Um, a lot of it's done in, in Australia, actually. And the FODMA foods are being updated constantly levels of FODMAPs and different foods is being updated constantly and this information is fed to those who are trained whereas a lot of the information online could be dated for a few years and may not be relevant anymore so and again you know you're you're doing something that's really difficult really stressful and you want to ensure that you are not missing out any nutrients and putting yourself at risk of nutritional deficiencies and you know energy levels and different things like that so again another long-winded answer to your question but but yeah so that would be sort of the the food wise that's sort of the main the main ones that would be the biggest issue i guess one question i was always curious of is like i've had some clients who have you know gone to doctors and stuff and they, they've been called to they've been told like that broccoli and broccolini is the worst thing for like ibs symptoms and stuff so what would be your thoughts on like broccoli and broccolini what's is that true or false or how is it so broccoli would fall under the FODMAP heading for some people. It causes a lot of issues. 
for others, it's absolutely fine. So again, that sort of general umbrella term of don't eat this food, eat this, don't eat this. It doesn't yes. really, it's not helpful if that makes sense. But, but again, when it comes to things like with doctors and GPs, their time is so limited and they don't have the nutrition education that say a, a dietitian or a nutritionist would have. So all they really have to give for IBS, this is the only evidence-based intervention that they have to give other than a few, say like antispasmatics or um, stool softeners and different things like that, medication. So while it's like frustrating, this, you know, you, 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 there's only so much that they can give in the time that they've got and the knowledge that they have. So what I'd suggest is, because a lot of people don't realize that they can ask for like a referral to a dietitian, which is, isn't always offered because again, sort of, if it's the UK, you could be waiting like a year or something and the, the low funding and time restraints and different things like that. Over here in Ireland, it's yeah, pretty much the same with the HSE, but you could be waiting a good while. So unless you ask for it, generally it's not like offered. Mm. So if it's something that, that like if you don't feel kind of happy with the information you've been given, I would kind of advocate for that kind of referral or looking to go private to get the support because the support is there and it can just make your life so much easier and you might get to the the root of the problem a lot quicker than if you were trying to figure it all out yourself and while like broccoli is one of those can be a high FODMAP food for a lot of people um, and it generally it's quite like a gassy sort of food like a lot of people would feel maybe a little bit of bloating or gas after broccoli or like cauliflower and things like that and um, but when it's causing pain and distension and loose stools that's when it's not so good but again depends on the person and um, a lot of the time with anything in nutrition or particularly IBS it depends on the individual and what their what suits their body and what doesn't basically that's true I suppose even when like when you talk about stools that's probably something again that is I'm, I'm noticing the trend is like a lot of my clients especially new clients that they're like their fiber is so so low like I'd, I'd have clients who, you know, for the first couple of weeks might track their calories just to get an idea of like what their body needs and that kind of stuff. But like a lot of them new people come on, like their fiber, like 10 grams a day and all this is really, really low. So I suppose what is the importance of like fiber and what is fiber's role in the body? Yeah, great question. Um, I think if there is one blanket recommendation I'd make to every single person, it will be to look at increasing fiber. Um, because it just has so many benefits. So firstly, gut-wise, um, fiber, on a kind of physical level, fiber stimulates the gut muscles to contract and relax. So that's called peristalsis, but it actually stimulates that movement in the digestive system. So basically like fiber and water, sort of that dream team, particularly if you experience like bloating or constipation, because they work together to expand and stimulate that movement that might be a little bit sluggish in those kind of situations. Um, I always kind of describe it like if, if you think of, say, if you're in the gym, if you go and you grab a dumbbell to stimulate your bicep, so you're there working away and you feel that movement and the strength being built, and that's great. So you might do that for six weeks on whatever program you're doing, and then you're feeling strong, your muscles are working really, really well, and all this sort of thing. When you stop doing that, sort of maybe you go on holidays for like six months or something and your exercise kind of um slows down or whatever and you're not stimulating that muscle it still works but it's just maybe not as strong or not as effective as it was when you were continually exercising it so the whole digestive system is one long muscle and that needs stimulation as well so if you are not eating enough fiber or not eating enough food generally this can cause that little bit of sluggishness and things are slowing down and that's where you might find that you're getting fuller quicker you might find that your your stools are harder harder to pass or you're constipated and even bloating as well because basically those muscles aren't being stimulated so the food isn't moving through as easily um and you know there could be increased fermentation if it's moving that little bit slower um and things like that so so that's one really important one is that it stimulates that movement which is helpful for loads of factors and um, secondly it feeds our gut microbiota and this is the kind of ecosystem of microorganisms bacteria fungi yeast that live in your large intestine and these are really really beneficial and 
fiber is basically like their food, particularly resistant fiber that we don't digest. That feeds the, the bacteria in our gut. And the more of these beneficial microbes that we have, the more healthy we are because they have so many benefits to us. And basically they eat the fiber and they fire out really beneficial gases, which has benefits on things like our mental health and our digestion, digestion as a whole, gut health, our heart health and blood sugar levels and so many things, even kind of how they even have an impact on like things like stress, which is really, really cool, really amazing. So they also make lots of nutrients like B vitamins, vitamin K, and different things like that and some neurotransmitters and things too so immune system like everything you know they have such an effect on so many factors so it's really really important to look after them and a lot of people will go kind of jump into buying probiotics that this is going to increase the the diversity of my gut and that's just not always the case the best thing that you can do for these guys to get all these benefits is to eat more fiber basically so that's two kind of big factors for the gut kind of already mentioned that it can benefit your mental health there's lots of different studies and things like that coming out that in addition to say say for somebody with um mental health difficulties in addition to treatments say like talk therapy or medication uh sort of mediterranean style diet which would be quite high in fiber with like the kind of whole grains fruit and veg nuts and seeds different things like that can be really really helpful to support improving mental health and again it's partly to do with like the gut microbiota and um, the vitamins and minerals that you're getting um and again i think we generally feel a little bit better when we're not eating really heavy foods i suppose um so that's always going to be a plus i think particularly at the moment when there's a lot of mental health going up and down kind of um with the past year and things like that and um, it also benefits our heart health so getting enough fiber helps to reduce cholesterol um, basically it binds the extra cholesterol in the gut that we were in the blood it's called circulatory system um, and removes it from the body so that's always a plus too it's going to reduce your risk of things like cardiovascular events and stroke heart attack and different things like that so fiber is really good for us does lots of different things and it's just so beneficial and so helpful to so many things. So generally they kind of recommend around 30 grams per day is sort of that recommendation that the research shows is to be really beneficial. For some people, particularly if you've got IBS, it might be a little bit too much. For some people, it might be too little. So what I'd say is if you're currently sitting around 10 to sort of 20 grams, I think the current average is around 17 grams per day for most individuals in the Western world. Um, is to build it up slowly because like I said with the gut microbiota they get really excited when they get all this food it's like they're having a party so they can spread out all these gases bloating loose stills um constipation different things like that and again if you've you know when you go to the gym and you haven't lifted it in like a year then all of a sudden you decide oh yeah I'm gonna go all the heavy weights and you're crippled for a week same sort of situation happens in the gut if you have too much too soon it actually causes digestive issues and then people panic because they're like this is meant to fix it but it's like patience um so if you work it up slowly that's when you'll start to see things to improve and in addition adding that extra water because the extra water will then bulk that out and keep it moving through um but yeah if there's one thing you take from this podcast just look at your fiber intake and loads of fruit and veg nuts and seeds whole grains and you'll be laughing that's that. That's so good. I didn't actually realize that. Yeah, that's probably that bulk like going from easy. So I didn't realize that you probably need to increase it slowly. So like then obviously, but if you have too much fiber, let's say if you were having sixty grams a day, I'm like, is that way too much fiber, or is it going to depend on every person individually? Um. So sixty is probably a lot. Um. Like you would be probably eating quite a lot of food there. Um. There just doesn't seem to be any benefit of eating anything more than about 40 grams, if that makes sense. So research-wise, I haven't seen anything that says it's detrimental to your health, whether then it might cause more loose stools, which is just annoying, or like bloating, things like that. Mm. Um, So, yeah, if if you're you're able to manage that, some people might not actually manage that much. Um, But anything more than kind of 40 grams, there's not really a lot to say that there's any benefit of that. So... I mean, if you want to do it, go for it and see what happens. But I'd probably stick around 30, 40 
but again that's a huge jump for a lot of people who could be between 10 and 17 you know so even if they're moving up towards 22 25 and again just seeing where their sweet spot is because for some people 30 might be way too much and they're really uncomfortable and that sort of party continues basically um whereas that little bit more might suit some other people so Ah, oh, true. So then, so from that then, so what would be the, what's the best foods to get your kind of, because I know they just say coffee, it's, it's not, most people have coffee, I guess their bowels moving. So what would be the biggest, like best foods for bowel movement? It's just say if you are constipated, what are the, what are the good foods to kind of get your bowels moving in the best way? So with kind of constipation, coffee, if you like it, can be really handy first thing in the morning. And a lot of, it's kind of, I suppose, people have mixed views on this because it's like you shouldn't be relying on coffee for bowel movement but it can be helpful as you're starting to increase your fiber as because you know no, the feeling of constipation is not very helpful or very nice um and the reason that how that works is coffee is or caffeine in the coffee is a stimulant and the same way that stress response works it stimulates the gut muscles to move and to release um, so things like kiwis have been shown to be really, really helpful for constipation. So two kiwis a day. So you might pop that on your breakfast. That can be really helpful. Um, then there are just generally looking at your fruit and veg intake can be a really good place to start. Because, again, if we overhaul too many things too soon, it can be just a little bit firstly overwhelming that if you're not used to eating vegetables or whole grains or things like that to overhaul everything all at once. It's a lot to think about, I suppose. So I would say generally looking at fruit and veg intake, generally vegetables with like their skins on can be really helpful. Um, and maybe throwing some extra fruit on your breakfast, maybe having as a snack, maybe adding an extra vegetable to your dinner or your lunch. Um, nuts and seeds are a really good source as well. So they're really handy again, sprinkle on your breakfast, grab a handful of kind of unsalted nuts with a piece of fruit for your snack or morning or afternoon snack throw on some yogurt or if you're into kind of salads and things like that you could sprinkle some on top similarly um on your dinner you could do that too if, if that will be if if you like that i suppose um chia seeds in particular and linseed can be really helpful those little pouches with the milled stuff can be really really helpful for um constipation i think two tablespoons has about maybe about 10 to 12 grams of fiber so I mean that's starting you off pretty well at the start of the day so you could mix that into say like oats or yogurt or things like that um whole grains as well so if you're used to kind of eating white carbohydrates and um, looking at maybe swapping out for whole grains some days just for a bit of variety and that has the whole grain has more fiber whereas the white products would have the fiber removed at the processing stage um potatoes can be really good too um particularly with the skins on both types white and sweet potato and then oats are really good too so you might have those for your breakfast or you can make up some oat bread um that can be really nice but like some nut butter and some fruit as well as a snack so yeah I, I suppose with that as well you I would maybe pick one and then work on it each week so this has worked really well my gut has managed that quite well so what can I add in next week and then working from there so um as I said, if you're used to eating maybe one or two servings of fruit and veg a day, going from like six, seven, eight, nine, ten, it's a lot to kind of a lot for your gut and also a lot for you mentally to be like trying to remember to get all these things and having all the stuff in. So small little additions can be really, really helpful. And then it kind of helps you build that little bit of a habit that it just becomes natural and that it's an addition, additional thing to your meal, if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. Yeah, bowel movements are extremely important for me, especially with my clients, because, you know, if you if your cycle is normal, like estrogen is, you know, it's quite a heavy hormone for a female's body. So the only way really to, to get rid of estrogen is like you have to kind of excrete it. So it's really, that's my biggest thing is trying to get my female clients to understand how their hormones work. But also bowel movement is like, it's just so important because if you're on the pill, it doesn't really make a difference. But if you're not on the pill and you're having the natural hormones, the only really way to kind of get them hormones out of your system is like from your stool. So it's kind of really important that people understand that. Like it just, it's just amazing. Like the more you look into like a female's body, it, it, like there's just so much that goes on. Like there's from like the cycle to ovulation to like to your stool levels. It's just, it's just, it just goes on and on, but it's just, there's not enough information really out there 
on the female body mm-hmm. as a whole and then then we probably come into the conversation of like you know eating disorders and emotional eating and all that kind of stuff and i suppose what is your views on that like emotional eating and eating disorders like and just having a better relationship with food in general yeah it's so interesting as well when you bring up like estrogen in the female body and stuff like that like it's all those like fad diets in like the kind of 1900s or whatever like it really just didn't do the female body justice and it's so sad that females felt like it was their fault for not being able to follow this diet when actually it was their biology needing more because they're they're doing a really important thing by ovulating every month and having that that body ready for a potential pregnancy and also all those different things but um yeah with like I suppose emotional eating is something I work with a lot but um I think that's like a real sort of has like a bad reputation or whatever that it's like oh you're you're not disciplined enough or you no sense of self-control and emotional why are you emotional that's that's a terrible thing to be in stuff you know we all have to be happy and particularly in Ireland you have to be grand all the time and stuff like that um but in my opinion I think it's I think it's also maybe shifting a little bit people are starting to realize that emotional eating is actually quite natural and it's not a bad thing when you think about um like all the emotions that we experience and all those emotional ties that we have to food so for example when you're a child at first when you're born you're um you know, one of your first experiences when you're being fed either through breast milk or bottles is a comforting feeling where you're in your parents' arms or your carer's arms and that food is there and that sense of like comfort and safety and care. Um, And then you've also got other things like, you know, like I think food is definitely fuel, but it's also so many things like celebration and, you know, it's excitement. Like, you know, when you're you know we've had a pretty boring day like oh like the majority of the time during lockdown we got takeaways or went for coffee because it was one bit of excitement in the day because we couldn't do anything else um and then there's things like you know you have cake at your birthday party to celebrate an extra year of life um you have you know there's always some sort of food or meal associated with a funeral when somebody's passed away and there's a little bit of comfort there and bringing the people together um when we go out meals with friends it's a great way to be social enjoy yourself and having fun and you know there's so much more to food than just um that feeling aspect and while that's also a really really important aspect too particularly with when you're exercising and performance and things like that there's also these other factors that when it comes to it like food is actually very emotional and you might have those memories with say a family member who say very generic idea you used to cook with your granny say she used to make cookies with you so cookies might have a a sense of comfort of that individual who made you feel safe help or like cared for and happy as all those memories of making cookies with your granny or I think a lot of people have that favorite dinner that one of their parents or guardians used to make that oh yeah that's what I really want now like a real it's a real cold day feeling a bit crap and I really want like a big uh, pasta bake that my mom used to make or different things like that so all these different things like those foods can give that internal sense of comfort and warmth and heat when we're feeling that not feeling that way when we're feeling emotional we're feeling upset lonely bored um anxious stressed um so all these different things play a role and then the other side of things too is if you're eating emotionally or you've recognized that you're eating in response to various emotions that tells you something that you have an unmet need so I think that it can be a really useful tool so if you find that this is happening quite often then it can be like okay so this is happening what is driving this what am I lacking what need am I am I not meeting so maybe that could be again going back to stress it could be that life is really stressful right now and I think we experience we all experienced an element of stress in the past year and that might be a way to to kind of help you feel better because Generally, we tend towards more sort of like females tend towards sweeter foods. Males tend to tend towards more kind of wholesome like meals. And again, maybe going back to mommy's dinners and things like that. But for for the sweet side of foods, these kind of carbohydrates actually produce more. They cause a kind of production of tryptophan, which is a precursor for serotonin. So it actually on a physiological level makes us feel good in that sense. And then you've also got that other side of things of the memories and the, the feelings attached to that. 
So again, you can use that as a, an indicator that, okay, this is happening quite, quite frequently. What is, what's going on? Um, am I eating enough? Firstly, is always a good, good way to look because a lot of the time we can confuse like physiological hunger with emotional hunger. Um, and I'd say uh, four out of five clients that come to me aren't eating enough during the day. And then they get to the evening, their hunger is like, ah, I need to eat something before I kill somebody. And then they're eating everything to make up for that energy deficit. And generally, it's not always emotional eating. A lot of the time it is, but sometimes that can have such a role. Then secondly, is kind of like your sleep as well. Are you sleeping enough? Are you, you know, if you're not sleeping enough, then you kind of have that increased need for energy. And if you don't, can't get it from your sleep, then food is the other way to get that. Um, are you looking after yourself? Is there any sense of like that sort of self-care word? I know it's turned around a lot, but are you actually doing the basics of like, you know, getting a sleep, feeding yourself, washing your clothes, getting a shower, saying no when you need to, um, having clear work boundaries, all these different things can play such a role. Because if you're kind of like a people pleaser and you can't say no, it can be really stressful for you to have to run around after everybody. And then maybe that stress will be dampened with food. Um, and I mean, I think food is a lot more benign than say something like, like drugs or alcohol and things like that so from that side of things as well it is a very valid coping mechanism and one of the least kind of detrimental I suppose and while these coping mechanisms are also so valid for whatever that individual needs in that moment um it's not very it's probably going to have a lot more detriment quicker than say food would so now that's like, I think emotional eating in the long term may not always be so helpful because it can increase those sense and those feelings of guilt, shame. Um, I have no sense of control. This is happening again, different things like that. But again, it can be that really key indicator that I need something, something is unmet. How do I, what do I need basically? Yeah, that's so true. And it's a good point about like, um, you know, your craving. That's probably the biggest thing is I find it might, female clients that like especially peak clients who've been on like crazy low diets like this like 1100 like 12 from the calorie diets like just really strict diets and then what happens is like then they come home and they're just so deprived of you know glucose and, and like sugars that they just they just kind of go for all the they go for all the stuff in the fridge and then they feel so guilty and this happens so often and mm. One of the probably ones I do in my clients, like just obviously get them to eat enough food, but then like triggers. So like I try really to get my clients like to kind of be able to acknowledge the triggers. And it could be as simple as like for my clients is like not having them. I don't agree with like, you know, don't buy the food, that kind of stuff. But like maybe like doing things that like you could put, you know, the stuff in the back of the press or even like some my clients, I get my clients to maybe chop up some protein bars and have it in the fridge or some fruits and stuff. So like when they kind of feel themselves getting that trigger coming on to motion lead that they can kind of, they're already kind of prepared. It's just like, it's like your, your backup plan. It's very same as if I suppose like going for a walk, when you get stressed, you go for a walk. So mm -hmm. what, what would be your views on that? Like, so on kind of that principle of doing things. Yeah. So I think that could be helpful because like, I suppose my way of looking at it is always sort of like, okay, the food it's never about the food if that makes sense it's always about what's going on internally for that individual um so like i kind of go that little bit deeper so which i don't know maybe not everybody wants to do that so that's fine but um so i would think that like having those foods there ready to go as well can be helpful because a lot of the time you might find the person ends up in the kitchen they're driven by whatever's going on and if they can pause and think okay the reason I feel this way is because x maybe it's like I've had a big fight with my partner and I'm not really very able to manage this feeling of anger or um sadness or something um so in that moment you might be able to say okay really want food but is there anything else that would help so if there's something else so that might be to call somebody for a chat or go for a walk or whatever but if that is not enough food is still a viable option and always an option. So having those foods ready to go there could be quite helpful that it's ready to go and it can give you that sense of comfort and maybe might alleviate kind of going for something maybe a little bit more, less nutrient dense, if that makes sense. So that can be really helpful. Um, sometimes what I notice too is if some people 
just some people can find that that specific craving needs to be that specific food so they might find that going to the fridge and having that option is good but they'll probably end up back at that that specific trigger where they might just go straight to the specific trigger now this depends on the individual and what's going on and how how long they've been doing this habit and how much they've been suppressing and how long they've been suppressing these emotions because there's going to be a level of maybe like a spectrum of how severe the habit is I suppose but um but yeah that sounds like a really helpful tool for some people too but, um, um, when you look at binge eating and so what'll be the what's the biggest that's again probably a big word that that's a massive word that comes up as well as binge eating and for me and my clients like I don't really like I don't really binge and to me like it's I, I view it differently like if I watch a whole thing of like Netflix you know it's not really binge it's just me enjoying it and the very same if I have a tub of ice cream like rather than like label it as a binge I just kind of label it as foods I enjoy I think that's a big thing too is this whole like especially social media like you know join my program in 20 days and I'll stop you how, I'll show you how to stop binging on all the foods but for me, like personally, I think it's a bad way of, of phrasing like binging because then it just puts so much guilt on like someone that wants to have the foods love. Like if I overeat an ice cream, well, that's fine. I'll just move on tomorrow. And that's the way I look at yeah. it is ra- rather than binging and, and going backwards because then it just leads to eating disorders. Yeah, that's actually a nice way to look at it. Like even, you know, at Netflix binges, people get such guilt for watching a whole series. And it's like, yeah, but maybe that's what you wanted to do. That's mm. fine. But, but like... And like, like you said, it's like you're just enjoying it. Like as soon as you change that word, it just completely t- changes your approach to it or your feeling about it, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, I definitely agree. The, the binging or the word binge has such a negative association to it that as soon as you say it or think it, you're a terrible person and you should have had more self-control and all that sort of thing. Um, and it is a tough word because you have binge eating disorder, which is an eating disorder, and that's completely you know out of our scope but um you have that sort of spectrum of like maybe it's hard like it's hard to like think of another word I suppose because you have like overeating which is maybe earlier on this spectrum that maybe that was to do with not eating enough during the day and then you might have other people who have like a, a planned sort of episode of binging and it could be triggered by seeing a certain individual or an experience or a sense of loneliness or different things like that so I suppose with the with the binging, it's a lot more planned than like emotional eating. Emotional eating is t- generally sort of like in that moment that it's like right there and then that emotion needs to be sorted. Whereas binging could be a more planned experience where, again, I'm trying, I can't think of another way to like describe that, but binging as opposed to binge eating disorder. And that word binge can be thrown around quite a lot. And people's perception or idea of what a binge is is can be very very different so for some people it might be that they like you said maybe had uh an extra maybe like half tub of ice cream or something and it was like oh my god like I ate so much for them that might be a lot of food and they're not used to that and it's out of character for them um for somebody else it could be a tub of ice cream packed with popcorn chocolate bar like loads of different foods and things like that so I suppose it's quite like individual on a level as well that it's like okay well what is what, it, what does that word mean to you and what does that in, entail and again going back to sort of what's going on what is driving that um because it's not a lack of sense and a lack a lack of control it's not um a lack of self-discipline it's a human need that needs to be met and this is what you're using to meet that and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that it's just about reframing that firstly like you said maybe I think it's a bit hard for people to be like okay I just ate it and moved on because that guilt can be so strong and maybe the emotions that are already there and um, for some people it can work quite well but if we can look at okay well what is what is driving this what's going on and how can we look into that more and then again you've got that scope of okay where is my line and where is the referral to the mental health professional so being really really clear on that too is always helpful but there is that role of okay are you eating enough are you sleeping enough and different things like that so so yeah um yeah, that word's a tough one, I think, because it just, I think it means different things to different people, doesn't it? Even between us and, say, an individual, we'd have a similar idea, whereas someone else might be completely different. No, exactly. I, I, I just feel like, for me, like, I think it's just a lot of social media pressure and this whole, like, like, I've seen so much, like, influencers and, like, 
selling the plans that will stop you binge eating. And it just, it just brings a negative spin into it, I suppose. Yeah, for me, it's like, well, one, number one is once I get my, all my, any client, any female on like a good high protein diet, a good food with good carbs and good fats, their whole body changes. Like once you can get like a female, like to, you know, lift some weights and, and just get that resistance training and like start getting protein high, get some good carbs, good fats, her body just runs in a different way. And then like they don't crave as much food. Because generally, as you said before, like females will crave that sweet food. But then as soon as you, start getting like i've noticed like especially in ireland like protein is like non-existent like i'll take on a new client and they'll show me their food log for a week and it's like it's literally like morning would be the like you know four or five we a big lunch will be you know a breakfast roll and dinner but like you know 15 spuds some mushy peas and, and like a bit of frozen fish it's crazy yeah. and it's just education and once i can get them to get more protein and stuff they just feel so much better but I think, like, especially in Ireland, I think the lack of education is just, it's just not really there, especially around nutrition. And every female, like, no matter what age they are, it's, it's, it's so genetic. It's the same, like, the wee abix, the breakfast roll, or the soap bean, and, like, 15 spuds and some mushy peas and, like, frozen fish. Yeah, and I think as well, females learn so much, like, nutrition advice in inverted commas from, like, their, you know, aunties, mother sister and whatever diets they've been and what way what they've watched and observed whether they're aware of it or not most of us aren't we just absorb everything that we see when we're a kid and that becomes the norm so it's sort of like but this is really healthy because I'm not eating carbs or I'm not eating fat or I'm not eating this and it's kind of like um okay why don't we discuss how what about that feels healthy and then when you open that conversation it's sort of like don't know I just saw my mom do it so like it's funny that way too isn't it and um yeah, like you said, once you get people eating enough for their needs, it can have a profound effect on these habits. Um, for a lot of people, it can really completely undo what's going on. And a lot of it is, again, that psychological or physiological hunger rather than an emotional issue. But then again, there could be some who have that element of an emotional need or something else um, that might need that little bit of extra looking into different things and, and exp- exploration of what's going on. But um, but like that, yeah, getting enough protein can be so so helpful, and we just we just don't do it because it's not the norm, really, isn't it? Like, you have your cereal for your breakfast, and you have a few sandwiches or something, or your roll, and like that, yeah, a million spuds and like whatever meat was in the freezer that day, like that your mom like threw out, like you, and then you just take those those habits to your own life then as you grow up too, because it's just it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, it's crazy. But I guess the, if we go back to like, you know, emotional eating, like where is the where is the borderline between emotional eating and like, you know, an eating disorder? Where, where does it kind of cross the line, in your opinion, from what you've experienced? Yeah, so I suppose in for myself, like disordered eating is um, is more my realm and then an eating disorder. So like disordered eating can be on sort of like a spectrum. Some people will be worse than others. Um, some will be driven by behaviors they've they've watched, maybe dieting patterns, different diets that they've tried, emotional factors, different things like that. Whereas an eating disorder is very, very specific, very specific diagnosis criteria. Um, again, I suppose, we get into it or whatever but like some people might be missed because they're not in a certain bmi range or things like that but um well yeah you, you can kind of how do you describe it i suppose i don't know the exact criteria for an eating disorder diagnosis because it's just not an area that i work mm. in but you kind of know intuitively when you speak to someone where they're at and what is your what your role is and when it's maybe good to refer out so um you know, it can be things like extreme over exercise, like exercising a few times a day or extreme under eating where they're not willing to increase their food intake at all, no matter how, how much you try. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of, it's, yeah, so I suppose it's maybe that was a really vague answer. But, uh, but yeah, there's very specific kind of criteria for an eating disorder diagnosis compared to, say, disordered eating is very vague and very loads of different factors and loads of different not symptoms but like indicators I suppose so it's not really like whereas the eating disorder would be on like the DSM the psychological realm so so yeah I don't know if that answered your question but <laughs> no it does make sense but 
I suppose then from that then, like from from all your clients, people you've seen, what's been the biggest driver for like people that's come to you with like um, eating disorders? Like what's been the biggest driver from what they've experienced that's brought them to where they are now to you? Um, I suppose there's quite a wide range between individuals, but um, I'd work with a mix of people from Ireland and the UK, and I suppose the general sort of way of life in Ireland is everything's grand so mm. you know that kind of says it all it's sort of like you're angry ah it's grand would you get over yourself you're feeling really sad ah it's grand look you're, you have it better than anybody else um you're really happy that's great that's really really grand or um you know you're you're always grand and whatever feeling you're feeling is kind of like it's grand it'll pass you're fine like you have a better we always look for the positive um in everything which is which can be really helpful but a lot of the time it might invalidate that emotion that you really need to process and without processing that emotion it gets stuck and then it leads to issues down the line um personally because I suppose I really went down this route during the pandemic um the pandemic was like like the greatest driver because um I suppose we there were so many different things like there's such a sense of loss so we had we lost our day-to-day activities we lost our coping mechanisms we lost people, we lost the people that we love, and um, we lost the ability to travel. And, um, you know, we couldn't even go up and get a coffee, sit in with a friend and chat and things like that. We lost maybe our workplace, lost our job. And um, so that sense of loss brings so many different emotions. So you've got like your loneliness, like we're isolated, some people by themselves at home, some people with loads of different people or family and different things like that. And um, there was stress because we didn't really know what was going on or what to expect or how long the lockdown was going to last who was going to get it were we going to get it and then anxiety ties in with that too that the huge anxiousness of if I go to the shop and don't wear my mask or someone gets too close am I going to get it am I going to pass it on all these like the so many things to think about um boredom was a huge one um because sure when are we ever bored like you know we're we're working, we're texting, we're Instagramming, we're exercising, we're going, we're doing all the time. And this is the first time where we're fully forced to stop. And we're just not used to doing that anymore. So boredom was really, really uncomfortable for a lot of people. And it felt wrong. I felt like boredom as, as a whole just kind of feels like, like, I'm just kind of like, what do I do? And food can have that little bit of excitement again, like that you go for your coffee to get out of the house and something tastes good. You got your takeaway. And for some people, it was a little bit more than the takeaway of the coffee because that feeling of boredom was really, really uncomfortable. Um, so all these different emotions were brought up and um, it was really hard to just be grand, I think. You know, people really, really struggled. And while, you know, everybody was in the same situation um, we're in the same boat and we're all in this together, Every single person's experience of the past year was very, very different. You know, the different, you know, people work, working from home while also trying to manage homeschooling. People lost maybe one or multiple family members. Some people were at home. Some people were losing jobs. Some people were just generally having a really, really shit time with no big explanation or reason. It was just really tough. Um, and I think it's the first time in a lot of people's lives as well where we're forced to actually feel these emotions, where usually we might be having these emotions and these feelings, but we're so busy doing all the things that it gets depressed and we can get away from it. Whereas this is the first time for a long time that we're forced to feel those feelings that we're maybe not so comfortable. And we're so used to being happy and excited and energetic and going out and having drinks and having a great time and putting on this front that we might not even be fully aware that we're doing but um these other emotions which are seen as maybe like negative are just as valid as your happiness your excitement your elation um again it's telling you something and it's telling you that you need something and if we can learn to sort of sit with that discomfort and those emotions it can be really helpful because they pass so much quicker then but um but yeah I think that was being forced to to be still, I suppose, and wait and uncertainty was a huge driver for a lot of people. Yeah, food is that's just food that could just comfort, isn't it? Yeah, and I think majority of our usual coping mechanisms were completely taken away from us with no, you know, no warning and no 
idea of when we'd get them back so for some people like that going to the gym is a huge a huge thing for them and um, for some people meeting for for a coffee with a friend or just even being in the workplace can be great um so when you have that lack of coping mechanism one of the only things that we had during lockdown was food um so you know we could go and do our food shop like i said we could get our takeaway coffee we could get our takeaways we could try some new meals or we could stock up on some really tasty food to help and numb and dampen that emotion and bring up the good emotions again so while that maybe was short-lived and we might start to feel then the guilt and things like that but um yeah so I suppose there's quite a, a range of things we all experienced this year that maybe we weren't very familiar with which was really scary and uncomfortable is the biggest thing I suppose um so yeah I suppose to tie it all in then yoga is another big you do yoga too don't you yeah yeah so try try to tie that in with the with the gut health as well because movement has a huge impact on our gut too <laughs> so how do you how do you find like so yoga for you in general like how do you find it what, what's your like if you were to explain yoga in like a short like stint how would you explain and what's the benefit to yoga that's such an interesting question um so it's supposed to me like yoga is really just about getting out of my head into my body and getting a sense of stillness as well like it's one of the only times you even if it's that like five minutes at the end where you're slowing down but it's just for me and for my my mind which is quite a busy thing and it really helps my digestion because it switches off that stress response for me and but having that time to just be still and to kind of pause and like see what those thoughts are saying can be really helpful that I think a lot of people focus on like trying to clear their mind when they're in like a meditation or they're doing yoga but really it's more about tuning in and seeing what's coming up so if your your mind's really busy what's it saying and what is it what what things are coming up and maybe do you need to explore that further so it might be like I need to do the shopping cool go do the shopping where it could be more deep than that um and then that movement aspect is really good for again that stimulation of the gut muscles so it can help with kind of releasing stress releasing gases and getting that movement so that that movement aspect is really helpful for me too because when you're quite a busy go 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 kind of person or your mind is like that that slower sort of movement can help with you're still moving so you're not like still which can be intrusive for some people but you're slowing things down and moving that little bit slower that helps with slowing again coming back to that rest and digest so yeah I suppose that's yoga for me in a nutshell it's tuning in getting my mind or my head out where my attention out of my head and into my body and yeah slowing down I suppose definitely getting more popular yoga like I suppose like 10 years ago yoga was something that you not many you do but at least now like there's more and more people in yoga and like I I, I I try like meditation every day and even for me like just to show good just to slow it down a small bit like just to make everything a bit calmer isn't it yeah, it just gives you that headspace, doesn't it, for a few minutes, like to kind of get your thoughts together. And before you head into your workday, it kind of just helps you to stop and be like, right, okay, what's coming up today? And it could be simple as I need to make sure I email that client. Where another day it might be like, I'm really mad this morning, but I'm not sure why. And then it can help you to say, right, feeling a bit mad, get out the journal, what's going on? And even though it's like, it can be, again, hard to get out the journal and figure out because you might want to know but it can be a really really useful tool particularly in things like well digestion emotional eating things like that because it's really helping you to get to the the root of the cause and so I think it's a useful tool to to add to both and sometimes you see with emotional eating and digestion as well that relationship with food also can be driven by like a you know a poor relationship with the body and yoga has been shown to be really helpful to rebuild that connection to the body, that interoceptive awareness of what's going on internally, both mentally and physically, and rebuilding that relationship with the body. So that's also another really helpful aspect that you're kind of getting loads of different things. You're getting a little kind of form of movement. You're getting some headspace to see what's going on. And you're also rebuilding that little bit of connection and relationship to your body that may be disconnected, maybe through the emotional eating or, you know, they, they kind of you know they kind of tie in or whatever but you can get so much from such a simple practice um, and I think that's why a lot of people have been drawn to it this past year too because it's getting that little bit of headspace and me time and slowing down I think a lot of people really slowed down 
where the high intensity exercise wasn't really as helpful to them because it was maybe a bit too much but it's helped a lot of people I think to to really just like with everything else like slow down and tune in again a hundred percent hundred percent but that was really good that was um, such a good chat like there's so much information there like about everything IBS and food so that was really good and so I guess um how can people find you if people want to find you and stuff Sarah uh, so I'm most active on Instagram, uh, kind of on Facebook, but not so much. Um, but if you look up the handle at f.i.g underscore nutrition underscore, um, you'll find me there. So it's food is good. Nutrition is the, or fig nutrition is the name. So, yeah. That was so good. I and, love um, chat. Questions. <laughs> if you have nah. questions or anything, drop them by DMs and that'll be back to you. Oh, amazing that was really good and uh, yeah thanks for coming on and hopefully this will help like so much more people to understand and just get better handling stuff thank you so much for having me it was so much fun perfect stuff